Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through uh, 29. Um, If you're just joining us or you haven't been here in a while, we are about halfway through, through our series that we're going through in the book of Galatians. And last week we looked at verses 10 through 14 and Paul's defense that we are saved by faith. And now this week, what we're going to look at is verses 15 through 29, wrapping up this chapter where Paul is going to really defend the true purpose of the gospel versus what the legalists are using it for. And then he's going to drive home again that we are saved by faith. So remember what I told you last week, especially in chapter three, Paul is getting uh, somewhat and, and continuously repetitive, but this is not because he can't figure out how to say something important, but he's going to use any and every way to repeat himself and saying, listen, we are saved by faith. And so these legalists, these Judaizers that have come in are really giving some argument to Paul and he's going to use every single angle that he can to say, listen, you've taken something that was intended for good and you've used it wrongly. And if we're honest, there's many things that were intended to be incredible and good, but they have been hijacked and misused. Now we can look at some today, Uh, for example, food. This is something that sustains us physically. It gives us energy. And it's a, a common helpful tool within community. It, it's something that where all of us, everyone gathered around a table, there is value when you sit together and you eat a meal together. I mean, if you take a nice piece of steak, you season it well and you grill it to perfection. And then this part is important. So bear with me, listen up. You take garlic butter, <laughs> preach, right? Um, and you put that on the steak afterwards, that's good. That's like, praise God and give thanks for that provision good, right? But now what you have is you have additives and you have junk and you have things that have gone into our food that are not good for you. You have gluttony in the midst of that. And also people are turning to fill food or, or seeing that food would fill a void and a need. And ultimately, it's about gratifying their flesh. We also see the misuse in alcohol. I mean, alcohol is something that scripture tells us we can enjoy together, that it's used in celebration and in practice, in communion. Jesus didn't take no juice with his disciples when they were sharing in communion. I mean, this is something that can be used as good that's been misused. I mean, the very first time I took communion with a group or the very first time I drank wine was in sharing communion with a church staff that I was working with. And that was my first consumption of wine. And that for me, I thought that was an incredible opportunity. But now what we see is that alcohol is used for really the purpose of numbing, for even letting loose from how we feel without it. And so if you think about it, even in our town, there are more bars in this town than there are gas stations. I mean, think about that for a second. And we see this in many things. I mean, look at sex. It's, a, it's an opportunity for intimacy with our spouse, a way to serve one another in marriage. And out of this comes children. I mean, if you haven't noticed, this is one of the ways that our church is growing, right? So there's, there's good to this that God has intended But then you have those that are seeking to fill what they want, so they are abusing others for their own pleasure. 
So this is where we have devastating, not only statistics, but truths. You have sex trafficking and you have rape and you have the porn industry. All of these things created out of something that God intended for good within marriage. And then you see uh, something that was intended for good that is bad. I mean, the internet. We can look at technology as a whole, but just looking at the internet, this is a great tool that can inform us. It helps us make connections. In fact, we were driving somewhere the other day and Shauna asked me, how did we do this before, before the phone and before maps? And I was like, I think they pulled out this paper thing and it was also called a map and it would like go across the whole, right? We don't, we don't have that anymore. The internet is a, is a tool that really informs us now, I, I just really aged myself, and some of you are noticing, has he seen a map? I've seen a map. Don't worry. <laughs> I've seen a map. I know they're real. It's not just on my phone. But let's be honest about this for a second as well, because we are more connected when it comes to technology. We are more connected than we ever have been with more people than we ever have been connected to. And even though it's easier to find people with shared common interests as we have, The truth is today we feel more alone and more unknown than in any other time in human history. And so the statistics around this are staggering. I mean, I don't even have time to share all of them with you, but just some of the social media issues that come up, I mean, it gives you a false sense of connection. Not not deep community, but this false sense of connection. And then you have some of the cyberbullying that is happening. And then you also have the decreased productivity. I mean, everyone is on their phone. I mean, one of the statistics when researching this issue was that there are more users under the age of 10 on Facebook than over the age of 30. Think about that for a second. And so there are issues around this, and it was something that was intended for good. And then you see the porn industry and how this is taking over on the internet. In fact, some of the statistics are that there are 4.2 million pornographic websites in existence, and every minute that increases. And 42.7% of internet users are on the internet right now viewing pornography. And there's something like 30 seconds, that every 30 seconds, there are hundreds of movies and images and, and pornographic material shared on the internet. So the idea that something was intended for good and now being used wrongly is something important for us to understand as we get into the text, because this relates to what we're looking at in Galatians today. And if you really take a moment to pause and reflect on its purpose versus its misuse, you'll begin to understand exactly what is going on here. And so Paul has been somewhat negative about the law up to this point. As we've looked at Paul sharing about the law, he's been negative a little bit in his communication about the law. And so Paul is going to take a moment to explain what role the law plays in the plan of God. And so it's not that the law is a bad thing, It's that it's a good thing being used in a bad or wrong way. And so the Judaizers used it. They used the law for a purpose it was not originally intended for. And so in this text, Paul's going to explain what the purpose of the law was 
and what it is and really try to correct the perversion and misuse that had occurred. And so he's going to argue that the law is good when you use it for what it was intended for. That there is a difference between law as God intended it and law as legalism. But in the end, it still does not save you. The law does not and cannot save you. And so what we're going to see and unpack from our text this morning is that the promise has come only through Christ that where the law was added because of transgressions, by faith we have now put on Christ. If you're taking notes, those are your fill-in-the-blanks this morning, that the promise has come only through Christ, that where the law was added because of transgressions, by faith we have now put on Christ. And so we're going to read in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. And if you don't have a Bible this morning with you, that's okay. Um, there are some out in the commons and in the back here. If, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, and also this morning, it will be on the screen behind me. So in chapter 3, starting in verse 15. To give, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now as intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law with our guardian was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning and we open your word, God, we ask that your truth from it would resonate um, not only in this space today, but in every ounce of our lives. Father, I pray that we would come to see that we are 
saved by faith, faith alone and, and grace alone, through Christ alone. That it is not by our works anything we can do. And so, Father, I pray that for anyone who has come in thinking by their own effort, working by their own effort, God, would you reveal to them how exhausting that truly is, how wrong that truly is, and that, God, you would point them to Jesus. So, God, we love you, and we thank you for the incredible work of your son, both his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And so it is in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Amen. So Paul begins in verse 15 by explaining that if a man-made covenant cannot be voided or added to, then how much more unchanging is the covenant and the promise God had made? Now, let me tell you something as we read this text. I am grateful that we do not serve a God that is fickle as we are, especially when it comes to covenants. So we don't serve a God that is is like a man who might want to renegotiate terms and promises. The truth of God is that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Even when we do not live up to our end of the contract, he does. And so this is why Paul uses the Abrahamic covenant as an important example in defending that we are saved by faith. And so the covenant God made with Abraham and the promise Abraham received was given before God instructed Abraham to be circumcised. We see this in Genesis chapter 17, that this covenant was upheld not by circumcision, but by God himself. And so now in verse 16, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, when God promised Abraham In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so here, Paul observes that the singular for seed is used, not the plural. And this is important because this is referring to one specific descendant of Abraham, not all of his descendants in general. And so Paul confirms for us in verse 16 that the descendant that he is talking about, that God himself is talking about in Genesis chapter 22 is Jesus. That this is because the fulfillment of the promise has come only through Christ. And so Paul points out that the law does not alter anything about God's earlier covenant with Abraham. Because if the inheritance offered to Abraham was on the basis of the law, it would not be permanent. If it was on the basis of the law, that promise, it would not be permanent because it would depend at least in part on Abraham's keeping of the law. At some point, Abraham would be required to keep the law. But since the inheritance was offered on the basis of promise, God's promise, it stands sure. And so through all of this, Paul is really demonstrating again by the scriptures that the approach to God on the grounds of faith alone and not works and not works plus faith is deeply and rightly biblical. And so remember, as we've seen all throughout chapter three, Paul is really bringing up Old Testament to really help us see that there is not a contradiction between Old Testament and New Testament. 
that God is perfectly at work and not contradicting himself. And so Paul tells us out of verse 17 that 430 years before the law even showed up on the scene, God had granted salvation to Abraham. And so his point in this text is the law can't save you. God does not save via behavioral modification. So you doing better, you living a cleaner life does not save you. You being more and more obedient to the Ten Commandments cannot save you because God granted salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, before the law even existed. And so God's covenant with Abraham is much like a last will and testament. It cannot be changed. And here, Paul is using legal terminology. So let me give you an example of what this would look like with a legal illustration. So let's say you, you and your spouse wrote out a last will and testament, and you wrote, if something were to happen to me and my spouse, we're leaving all we have to our oldest son. We're going to leave it all to our oldest son. And then a terrible accident happens. And the judge then opens up your last will and testament. Your oldest is there. And the judge begins to read the last will and testament. And he reads, you get all that your parents had. All of it is coming to you. All of the possessions, all of the things that they had, all of it is coming to you. Then the judge folds it up and puts it in the envelope and says, but the only way you get those things is if you go to this college, you major in this degree plan, and you have this GPA. So let me ask you, does the judge have the right to do that? No, he can't add to a ratified document. He simply has to let the document speak for itself. And so Paul's argument is much like this. He's saying, God already gave the promise. You can't be saved by something that comes 430 years after he granted salvation. So the law cannot be the argument for our right standing before God because even before the law, God gave Abraham the promise by grace through faith that our right standing before God would come from the offspring only through Christ. Now with Paul stating that the law came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, and that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, then there's an important question that we need to ask. And Paul knows it's coming. So in verse 19, he asks it, why then the law? Why then do we have the law? And he continues with the answer saying, it was added because of transgressions. Now, if we dig deeper into context of understanding the law and, and especially understanding Paul's writings as a whole, what we'll find is that the law was not just added because of transgressions, but also to reveal transgressions, to make them known. That's why when, you, when we took a moment last weekend and, and we did the Ten Commandments test, we all fell short. When we, when we went to Exodus 20 together, just for a moment, even the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. I asked you, do you love things with more dedication and more fervor than you love God? How you doing on that this week? See, the, the truth is that you and I are going to over and over and over again fail this test. 
And so in reality, the Ten Commandments in the law were not given to you because you were going to be able to perfectly obey them, but to show you that at the very base level that you would never be able to and that you needed help. And so what the law does is it reveals our sin and it points out our need for our Savior. And this is why Christ came and fulfilled the law in our place, so that by faith in him, we could become free in him. And so the law was given by God in his pursuit of his people before the promised Savior came. Because before the law, there was no standard for God's people, and so God revealed his holy standard to which people are to live. This was part of the purpose in revealing the law, that the law persistently reveals our failures to live up to God's standard of holiness. And it also reveals the deep sin within our hearts and ultimately our great need for a savior. And so here Paul speaks to this even later in verse 19 when he says that where the law was added because of transgressions, it was only until the offspring, Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, what this means is that Christ came and he fulfilled the law. And it is then the final of him being the mediator. That Christ is then the final mediator. Now, we see in verse 20 that Paul begins to explain this a little bit. And he says that an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, let's dig deep a little bit. The word intermediary means a person who acts as a link between people in order to try to bring about an agreement of reconciliation. And so Paul's argument here, if we dig deeper into the text, not just how we see it in our American English text, but if we dig into the text deeper, we'll see that Paul's argument here is one of unity. Now, what is true, if you go and you dig into this text, many commentators and some theologians have argued over this text, stating that they believe there are about 200, if not around 300 translations and differing views of this verse. And so not all have seen it the same and they view it as very complex. But I believe Paul's argument here is one of unity. And this is where I value John Calvin's commentary on this verse so much because he helps us clearly see the truth pointing out and pointing to unity that Paul is getting after. And so John Calvin says about verse 20, when Christ brings those who formerly differed among themselves to one God and makes them unite in one body, God is one because he always continues to be like himself and with unwaveringly regularity holds fixed and unalterable the purpose which he has once made. So Paul is making the point of unity because God is unified in his purpose through himself. That from the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant to the law, and finally through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has been at work, and his plan all along has been to save us by his own doing and by his own work. And so when the law was given to Moses, 
He needed a mediator between himself and God. Paul even references that the angels acted as mediators. Moses acted as a mediator to the people. So there were mediators. But when Christ came to fulfill the law, fulfill the law, as he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, he became the mediator. So we don't need another mediator between us and God. Jesus is our mediator. And Paul speaks also about this triune God working together here when he says in 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so since Christ is our mediator, then we no longer have a need for the law, which is why Paul states that the law does not give life. Now, although the law cannot give life, it does not counteract God's covenant promises. It simply serves a different but very complementary purpose. And so Paul goes on to explain that the purpose of the law is to make all people aware of their need for rescue from sin. And so in verse 22, Paul paints a picture of imprisonment that the bars of the cell are sin, keeping us confined. Then in fact, he says, the scriptures put us in the prison because it pointed out our sinful condition. So we sit imprisoned by sin and the law cannot help us because the law put us in the prison. Only faith can break us out of our confinement to sin. Only faith can break us out of our confinement to sin. So this is why Paul said in verse 22 that scripture, the scripture imprisoned everything other under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so the law of Moses can show us clearly our problem and God's standard but it cannot give us the freedom that only Jesus can, that only Jesus can give, that the freedom is given to those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what is true of all of us, I would say, is that it's really easy to remain in or go back to that place of bondage. It's easier to do that because especially for you doers, it's something you can do. Even though you're miserable in the midst of it, it's something you can still do. To go back to that place of slavery, to that place of bondage. But let me remind you what Paul continues to remind us, that if you are in Christ, you are no longer in chains. You are no longer under the law, but under Christ because you have freedom in Christ. And so now what Paul is going to close with is that by faith, we have now put on Christ. We've now put on Christ. In verses 25 through 26, Paul says that now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So remember too for a moment that These are Gentiles that did not follow the law. 
But remember, because of those who have crept in secretly, they have believed in a perverse version of it. They've been made to believe that they are saved by Christ and also some of the works of the law. And so there's, there's this perverse version that's creeping into the church. And so Paul is deeply concerned and he is reminding them that if you have put on Christ, then you are free. You cannot have Christ and have the law. If you have put on Christ, you are free. And so in verses 27 through 29, Paul begins to help us see what it means to put on Christ. In verse 27, he says that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So believers who have been baptized have participated in Christ's death and resurrection. So as you go down into the water, it's the old life laid as you put on Christ and then you then walk in him. Now, something I would say that I, I have a deep offense against the evangelical church and a deep conviction of mine that, that sometimes we don't take baptism seriously enough. We, we kind of take it as that I'm saved by faith, I'll get dunked when I can. And that deeply concerns me. Now, I, I want you to remember, though, that Paul does not present baptism as a replacement of circumcision. That faith in Christ Jesus is the only requirement for entrance into the family of God. So baptism does not save you. Your faith in Christ Jesus saves you. But I would reason with you that out of obedience, put on Christ. Don't, don't wait to go, okay, let, let me pick and choose the obediences I want. I want you to understand baptism does not save you. Your faith in Christ Jesus saves you. But Paul is reasoning. Listen, you have received by faith. You have put on Christ through baptism. So walk in Christ, put on Christ. Your old life is laid down. Put on Christ. And so Paul also makes a clear point that observance of the law is not a contradiction or it's not a condition for becoming a child of God and it would be a contradiction. And so this is why for Paul, adding the law to their faith would be misguided and destructive. And so here in this text, as Paul addresses his misguided brothers, he's driving home for them that we are saved by faith in Jesus. So we're not to put on the law, but to put on Christ. And Paul even begins to explain even deeper how that life will look different. Paul emphasizes in verse 20, 28, the standard categories that often divide people. That really between the Judaizers and the Gentiles, remember the Judaizers are Christ-believing Jews who have added portions of the law to Gentiles who have not grown up following the law. So can you imagine if we could physically see lines, how many lines are going on there? And Paul is saying, if you've put on Christ, there are none of these lines. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. 
So race, social status, gender, these categories do not apply to those who are in Christ. Now, it's not that these principles cease to exist among us, but rather that these distinctions are not grounds for exclusion from the life that God offers to all people in Christ. But remember, the whole problem among the Galatian churches is that some wanted to still observe the dividing line between Jew and Greek. They wanted these lines to exist because for some reason, for some reason their bondage made more sense than Christ. But Paul writes in, in Jesus Christ, that line has been done away with. When we are in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So through the reconciliation of the gospel, there is no longer a dividing line between you and God. And there is no longer a dividing line between you and I. Could you imagine what this means to a people who do not follow Jesus. We live in one of the most divided cultures and divided times ever, I would argue, in history. We're, we're divided over everything and we get our, our feels all hurt when the lines divide us deeper. And what Paul's arguing is, hey, your lines not only don't matter, they don't exist in the heart of the gospel because there's no longer a dividing line between you and God. There's a perfect mediator. There's no longer a dividing line between you and I. There's gospel reconciliation. And so here, Paul says, we can be considered sons and daughters of God as complete, in a completely different way as the Judaizers are preaching. That it's through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is what it takes to be saved. It's faith in Christ. It's not all that you can do. It's not about how great you are or how awful you are. You better fix this. You better do more, try harder. None of that is going to work because the truth is you aren't that awesome. And this is what the law would reveal. But God is that awesome that he would take busted up sinners like you and I and call us children if we would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what it takes to be saved is faith, absolute faith, trust in Christ. It's not the law. It's not the works. It's not the self-righteousness of what you can bring up in a petty childish way. It's faith in Christ. And so as we come to a close this morning, I want to ask you the question I keep going through time and time again for you to ask yourself, do I trust in the finished work of Jesus? And I would imagine this is really where Paul is reasoning with them because so often what they have, what they have around them is this group of Judaizers in their ears. Yes, you're saved by faith, but what about the works? What about this? And, and through that, what tends to happen then is we begin to doubt what we once trusted. But if you trust in the finished work of Jesus, 
And it's not about your works. It's not about how awesome you're gonna do as you leave here. It's about trusting how awesome God is that the work is finished. So then as we leave here, we would trust in him and put on Christ. So I encourage you to ask yourself that question. Do I trust in the finished work of Jesus? Let's pray.